Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in DC. I'm Ida Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, US in Washington, DC. It's Thursday, the 17th of February. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, will diplomacy prevail in Ukraine? Do we want it or not? Of course not. That's why we have offered our proposals to start the negotiation process, which should lead to an agreement of providing equal security for everybody, including our country. Is Russia actually withdrawing troops? We have not yet verified the Russian military units are returning to their home bases. Indeed, our analysts indicate that they remain very much in a threatening position. To the citizens of Russia, you are not our enemy. But if Russia attacks Ukraine, it would be a war of choice. And for how much longer can the crisis on Ukraine's border go on? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, as you know, this is not our first time discussing the Ukraine-Russia crisis, but it seems to have both intensified and not this week. Ido, can you briefly bring our listeners up to speed on the latest in the diplomacy slash military slash state of affairs in Ukraine? Well, we're recording this on the 16th of February, um, which some listeners will know is the date that the US was warning Russia could start invading Ukraine. And um, I hope by the time this has gone out, it will not be out of date. But in case things have not drastically changed by then, listeners will notice that, in fact, has not transpired. And so we've had this kind of slightly mad week, which has been coloured by these US predictions about an invasion possibly beginning before the 20th of February, the end of the Winter Olympics, and then Biden telling NATO allies that it could begin on the 16th of February. And um, as of 3.30 Central European time, that has not transpired. So we've had this kind of flurry of, di- of diplomacy, of dip- uh, diplomatic efforts to engage Putin and to engage uh, Zelensky and try and avoid some kind of further escalation. Macron was in was in Moscow last week. This week it was the turn of Olaf Scholz, the um, German Chancellor. And on the day that Scholz was in Moscow, Russia had this kind of big 
PR flurry where it announced that it was withdrawing some troops from the border and sending some of them back in an apparent perhaps signal that it was willing to de-escalate. But there's still a lot of skepticism as to the extent of this uh, supposed withdrawal, whether it's not being counterbalanced by more troops being sent to the border, whether the equipment is going with the troops or just the troops. And uh, many Western countries are still quite sceptical of the degree to which this represents a significant de-escalation and um, a step away from war. Yeah, Katie, when you heard the announcement that, that Russia was was withdrawing troops, what did you think? And And with how large of a grain of salt should we take this? I mean, the first thing that struck me was just how sort of stage managed and choreographed the whole thing was. I mean, it was clearly and continues to be um, designed to to send a message that, you know, channels for diplomacy are are still open. The predicted conflict beginning beginning on the 16th of February um, is not going to happen. I think when you see you see the exchange between Putin and his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, you know, Putin asking him, uh, do you think there is still any chance for, for diplomacy? And, and Lavrov explaining that, well, it can't go on endlessly, but but yes. And Putin kind of nodding, nodding and saying, okay, you know, let's give it a go. I mean, it seemed designed really for messaging more than anything really concrete. And I think while we are definitely now seeing Russian troops moving around and very impressive videos from the Russian Ministry of Defense of, of tanks nominally withdrawing back towards their barracks, I don't think it has really lessened the real physical threat to Ukraine. It, it feels more like a pause than any real meaningful de-escalation. You know, I, I just I don't think we should be reassured by this. And I think the absolutely wrong lesson to draw from this is that Putin has been deterred. The statements of of how much he will suffer if he goes ahead with this have convinced him to back down and that he's decided that Putin has blinked. I don't think that's what's happening. I think Putin sees that there's a chance to get something more through diplomacy, that there's going in with a full-scale invasion right now might not be the right move, but that doesn't mean that that option is off the table. And it doesn't mean that we won't be talking about this again, you know, in the weeks and potentially months to come. I was very struck by Schultz saying, Ukraine isn't joining NATO right now, you know, they're not joining in the, even in the near future. And Putin saying, basically, that's not enough. That's not enough for us. We need more. It seemed to me sort of like Putin signaling that he was going to keep open a moving of the goalposts farther and farther away, asking for more and more. But what did, I mean, either of you think of that exchange between Schultz and Putin? I mean, I, I would say if, if, you know, if the number one grievance on the Russian side is that the West has gone back on its agreement, um, why would a new agreement change anything? I think Putin's looking for a much more fundamental discussion and ideally then revision of European security architecture. So I think while NATO has become the proximate cause and and one of the main talking points, this doesn't begin or end with with whether Ukraine eventually has the option of joining NATO. I wonder wonder about that though, because yeah, you're right. Russia did issue a really significant and broad range of security demands of NATO and of the US. And we've spoken before on this podcast about how they were complete non-starters and um, NATO is never going to agree to them under any circumstances. But actually, I'm interested as to whether you disagree, but it seems that recently we've, we haven't really been talking about NATO troops in Romania and in, or 
missiles and anything like that. We've really just been talking about Ukraine's NATO membership and Vladimir Putin in his conference with Scholz reiterated that that was one of the, the main issues for him. And Scholz's comment on, on Ukraine, which has been slightly misinterpreted in some circles, it, it's been put to me that it might have been testing the waters for some kind of concession over mm. Ukraine's membership of NATO, because Scholz was basically saying it would be absurd to have a war over something which has not happened, which all sides know is not going to happen in the short or medium term. And he was saying, well, it would be absurd to have a to have a war over the possibility of something happening at some point in the future, maybe. That's essentially what he was saying. Perhaps the fact that he made those comments after meeting Putin suggests that that's the central issue that that agitates Russia. And and we can see we can see that the arguments I mean, not necessarily the arguments, but the kind of threats that Russia is making, they're having some resonance in NATO because, you know, for example, Germany says it would be absurd to to have a war over over this hypothetical issue. Yeah, I guess my th- my issue is that um, that Russia also knows that Ukraine is not joining NATO in the next in the in the near future, and I think uh, Jeremy had a piece in the magazine last week that we can put in the show notes that basically looked at in part how this is not just about NATO, right? It's actually about Ukraine more broadly and its place in the world vis-a-vis Russia and vis-a-vis Europe. Moscow knows as well as Berlin that Ukraine is not about to join NATO. And I think I will once again remind that in 2014, it was also not about NATO membership. It was about signing an EU economic agreement. There are all sorts of people speculating as to why this is happening now. Um, We have a piece that we will also put in the show notes by analyst and writer Mark Aliotti, essentially saying that if Russia does invade Ukraine, which as Katie has said, is still a distinct possibility. It will be in part because Putin's thinking has changed and he's become less risk averse. I think he's been a, he's been a figure on the on the world stage for so long that it's easy to sort of say, oh, you know, he's he's been doing this for years, but but it would actually signify a shift in his thinking and behavior to which the rest of the world would have to adapt. An agreement or a concession on the Ukrainian side on not joining NATO is definitely something Putin would like to get, and I guess that's sort of what I mean in terms of thinking. Okay, I'm open to pursuing diplomacy, seeing how far we can how far we can go with this, and if he can get a firm agreement that Ukraine is going to withdraw its its commitment to join NATO, which is in the constitution, he will definitely take that, and we may well see tensions decrease and and a, and the current crisis subside. But I think that will then be the starting point for for the next demand, which, as you rightly point out, Emily, and as Jeremy writes in his piece. Like, I don't think the prospect of a Ukraine that has formally committed never to join NATO, but remains moving towards the European Union, is trading increasingly with the West and, and sees its future much more in the European orbit than it does in any sphere of influence from Russia. I, I still think that would be unacceptable for Putin. So I think he would take that, but then this will ramp up again. It just, it doesn't seem to me that he is going to accept anything that leaves Ukraine still on this westward path. And we should also note that Ukraine itself has not, has not said, okay, fine, we won't join NATO. So one other thing that has happened in the past week. So the United States toward the end of last week says invasion imminent. No, really, we mean at this time. There are reports as Ito, as Ito alluded to, there were reports that the date that they had was February 16th. 
And the U.S. says we're, we're recommending to U.S. citizens to leave in 24 to 48 hours. They, they, they say we're temporarily relocating our embassy to Lviv. Ido, in the not too distant past, you were in Lviv. Can you speak a bit about the significance of the city in Ukraine and perhaps the heightened significance that it will take on now? Yeah, it's quite interesting, right? I mean, in many ways, the divisions within Ukraine are overemphasized a lot of the time. But I mean, they are there. And one of the divisions that there is in Ukraine is famously between the East and West, the East that kind of stereotypically speaks Russian and looks towards Russia and has a much more kind of comfortable attitude to its Soviet past and its uh, relations with with Russia. And then the West, which um, was only annexed to the Soviet Union after 1939 or 1945, depending on quite how you look at it, which speaks much more Ukrainian than Russian and which famously um, is more nationalistic and is perceived to have a stronger sense of Ukrainian nationhood, or at least was before 2014. Things were a bit different since the first invasion, Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I suppose the news that some embassies and consulates are relocating to Lviv is quite interesting because in some of the worst case scenarios uh, of a Russian invasion where Russia really does invade large swathes of the country and intends on occupying it for a long time, uh, which most people I read and speak to think is quite unlikely, but I suppose remains a possibility. I mean, anything remains a possibility from a complete invasion of the whole of the country to um, to a complete withdrawal, anything in between. Every single option remains a possibility and to some extent. But the kind of broad consensus is that if Russia were to invade a bigger chunk of Ukraine, it's more likely to be the south and eastern areas and it's to be the west because although the populations of Ukraine in the south and east would still be hostile towards Russia, they'd probably be less hostile than they would in the west, which is where Lviv is. And equally, any kind of resistance movement or guerrilla resistance against Russian occupation would in all likelihood, have a strong presence in the west of Ukraine. And any kind of weapons or equipment or personnel movements would probably go through the west, go through the borders with um, with Hungary and Poland into areas around Lviv. So I suppose that's what gives the city its, its special significance. And so the other big event of this, well, was it a big event? Was it not? I guess that's that's up for debate. But one of the other notable events of the past week that we haven't really gone into in depth is that, as you know, as you said, Schultz was was doing the uh, the rounds this week. What did you take away from his visits to Moscow and Kiev? So one of the things that officials from some of the more hawkish NATO member states will tell you is that Putin hasn't actually really done very much. He's sent, you know, hundreds of thousands of guys and a lot of equipment and, and so on to the Ukrainian border. And I mean, but he hasn't actually committed to war. And as I've said before, I mean anything from total war to total de-escalation remains an option. And you can see that throughout this, there's always been a kind of strategy of maximizing the options available to Russia from anything from you know, total conflict to complete de-escalation. But at the moment, they haven't escalated. They haven't actually gone to outright war yet. 
But nonetheless, some of the objectives of Russia have been achieved by not actually taking any action and just threatening action. And one of those is that there have been, in some cases, quite significant splits within the Western camp, within the Western alliance, exposed. And Germany is probably one of the countries which has come out the worst uh, from, from this crisis. So in particular, there's Nord Stream 2, which we've spoken about, which has been planned for, for a very long time, and it's almost complete, uh, 95% complete, if not more. And we've had this sort of quite Kafkaesque situation where Schultz refuses to publicly commit to cancelling Nord Stream 2. But Biden does it for him. In Moscow, he said, everyone knows what the situation is with the pipeline. So, so he kind of refuses to do it for himself. And it's led to this kind of perception of Germany as really quite weak on Russia and almost a, a kind of appeaser. So they, ref for example, they refuse to authorize the export of weapons from Estonia to Ukraine and then compounded the error in the eyes of many European countries and, and certainly the Ukrainians by saying, well, we'll send you 5,000 helmets instead. And that caused much derision in, in Ukraine. And in fact, in, in many, many European countries which want the EU and NATO to take a confrontational stance towards Russia and to stand up to Russia. And, and we have this again with this comment, which although he didn't say that the option of Ukraine's membership should be taken off the table and either NATO or Ukraine should say that Ukraine is never joining the alliance, Berlin has, has kind of burnt through so much goodwill with these kinds of options that his, his statement was kind of twisted and presented in quite a bad light, which caused quite a lot of alarm in, in places like Ukraine and in, you know, in some of the more hawkish NATO member states like Poland and, and the Baltics and the UK, actually, and certainly, certainly the US. And so it's, it's this quite sort of interesting situation where Germany's position on, on Russia has actually gotten more hawkish. So the idea that Nord Stream 2, although it's all but complete, would be cancelled, would have been unthinkable a few years ago. And yet, that's clearly what Schultz wants people to believe, but he can't say it. And so it leads to this impression of, of weakness on the part of Germany, even though Germany's position has actually gotten tougher. German, uh, German positioning toward Russia and Ukraine, endlessly uh, fascinating, or I guess frustrating, depending on who who you are in this in this situation. Um, we should note that one other thing that happened this week was that there were reportedly cyber attacks on the Ukrainian defense and armed forces websites. So that is also one potential avenue of uh, increased tension, chaos that we'll continue to watch. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. 
Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But for now, we're going to turn to a segment that we like to call You You Ask Us. Nice. Okay. Our question this week comes to us from Ellie. What historic parallels can you draw with what happened in Afghanistan And is that helpful to make sense of it all? So this is a great question. And there are a few different ways to get into it. The the first is that I think that the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan this past summer looms very large here. It's part of the reason that the Biden administration has been so forceful in telling Americans to leave early and encouraging allies to tell their citizens and diplomats, et cetera, to consider leaving as well. They do not want a repeat of this past summer. Secondly, I think that anyone in the Biden administration who thinks that the way in which they comported themselves in Afghanistan, there isn't any hangover now with America's relationship with its European allies, with its own credibility, is deluding themselves, right? Like, of of course, of course, there's a factor. On the other hand, Russia also uh, invaded Afghanistan at one point, it was what some four decades ago, one could look at this, and Georgia and Crimea, and etc, in terms of Russia's own continuing imperial history. But I, I, I did want to raise that a friend of mine with whom I was speaking about this suggested that the better parallel for Russia is not Afghanistan, but the United States going into Iraq, where people clearly saw that this was going to be a disastrous quagmire. To go in was not the rational, it certainly was not the humane thing to do. It was also not the rational thing to do. But for a mix of domestic politics and sort of White House palace politics, that decision was taken 
and they already knew that they wanted to take it and conducted sort of the sham diplomacy ahead of time and then made the disastrous decision that they had already wanted to make. So a friend of mine suggests that we look to Iraq as a potential parallel for what's happening now with Russia. You know, Katie, Ito, when you guys think of either the Soviets' history with Afghanistan or America's history with Afghanistan, are there any historic parallels that jump out at you um, with respect to Russia and Ukraine? For me, um, and thank you to Ali for the excellent question, um, I think that the parallel with the Soviet invasion of, of Afghanistan with this is this would be much, much harder. Like there you had the Soviet Union going in to, to prop up a pro-Soviet regime um, and that which already ended disastrously. Um, that that time has has come and, and long gone in Ukraine. This would be a case of of intervening, imposing a, a pro-Russian regime from outside, defending it within the country, which I think then, you know, the parallels that you you bring in in Iraq w- would absolutely be relevant. This would be extraordinarily difficult to, to achieve through force. It would be both a, a human and a strategic catastrophe. But I think it's I think it's important to be to be asking to what extent Putin is now listening to good advice and good intelligence, um, and to what extent you know I think it it is widely agreed that this ultimately is going to come down to to his decision, and maybe this is something we can talk about in future episodes. I think there's a real question now of who is he listening to, um, and what sort of advice and intelligence is he getting on how this would go and how Russian troops would be welcomed uh, as it may be being presented by some into Ukraine. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is Russia is a unpredictable global actor. But in general, it's not a particularly reckless one from the perspective of its own interests. In general, if Russia does something, it is fairly sure that it's going to succeed at it. And the risks to itself of its particular action are relatively contained. So you can see that in Crimea. You can see that in, for example, the support that Russia gave to the Assad regime in Syria. You can see that in the war against Georgia in 2008, where Russia was sure that it would win quick and decisive victory over Georgia, which it did. Now, as as we've said an invasion of Ukraine is a possibility, and the Russian government has certainly been telegraphing its willingness to to do it. But it would be an immense departure from that strategy of risk averseness, relative risk averseness, and and that that really would be would be a big change. I think Ido makes a, a really excellent point, and I think what you know often the kind of stereotype around Putin is this sort of complete, you know, crazy, unhinged, unpredictable, who knows what he will do next, agent of chaos. That is not consistent with the with the behavior that we have seen. And I think Ido's right to point out that unless he is fairly sure that this is gonna go in his favor, he's he's not going to act. He's not going to just risk a potentially disastrous military offensive just to kind of see what he can get from it. I think that the question is, and I think the kind of the, the the you know the long tables that we've that we've seen lately are kind of a, a visual representation of this. Is just is Putin becoming more isolated? Is he you know in such a such a personalized authoritarian system? Is bad news getting passed up the line? 
And does he think that the cost of this would be lower than it would be? Is the lesson that he learned from Crimea, where Ukrainian troops, not all of them, but but some of them did defect to the Russian side, were unable to get orders from, from Kiev, and Russia was able to annex the peninsula it's it's not true that no shots were fired but with very with very few shots being fired would that be somewhat in some places the reception that he is expecting to get because that that is not how this would go in reality no that that's a really good point um and it's why part of that is why i've seen some people speculate that perhaps some of the potential off ramps that we're seeing russia kind of issue for itself. For example, this week we had a proposal by the Russian parliament that the People's Republics uh, in Lugansk and Donetsk could be recognised by Russia and so that their independence from Ukraine perennialised. And it's a whole other different question as to whether that's a good idea from from any perspective, from Russia, Ukraine's perspective. But one thing it would be is plausibly a way for the Kremlin to de-escalate tensions without losing face. And I've seen some people speculate that that might be coming from certain factions within the Kremlin, which are opposed to war, but which believe that the quality of information that Putin is getting is not good, and that perhaps he is getting flawed intelligence briefings, you know, people are are afraid to stand up to him. And so they need to find another way to push events away from the direction of war and proposals like this could serve to be in that direction. Now, we don't know, but any kind of objective observer knows that a Russian invasion of Ukraine would be really difficult and it would not be in keeping from the perspective of Russia's own interests and of its own internal stability and of its ability to hold on to to Ukraine, which, by the way, is a country of 40 million people. So it's a third the size of Russia. It's not some kind of cakewalk. Like It would be really, really difficult to hold on to some or or the whole of it. Some people sort of seem to forget that. Thank you to everyone who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for an interview with Rana Mitter on the 50th anniversary since US President Richard Nixon went to China. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.